My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Conquered nature, they say, and made a great white world. Is it any jollier than the world used to be in the good old days when life was short and hot and merry and the devil took the hindmost? All the same, what can we do about it? Rebel. Rebel now, 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 rebel now, now, now is the time. Is it any better world than it used to be? I rebel against this progress. What has this progress, this world civilization done to us? Now, suppose someone cried. Stop this progress! What a funny place, New York Always speaking up and full of windows. Mm, they built houses like that in the old days. Why? They'd no light inside their cities as we had, so they had to stick them up into the daylight. What there was of it, they'd no properly mixed and conditioned air. Everybody lived half out of doors. They had windows here. The age of windows lasted four centuries. We realized that we could light the interiors of our houses with sunshine of our own, so there was no need to stick them up if it's high in the air. What? People tired of looking down They were all tired, and they had a disease called cold. Everybody had cold, and they got up and sneezed and ran at the eyes. What? Oh, you. What is the good of all this progress onward and onward? We demand a halt. We demand a rest. The object of life is happy living. We will not have human life sacrificed to experiment. Progress is not living. It should only be the preparation for living. They staged the old Greek tragedy again. And the father offers up his daughter to his evil gods. Make no mistake about it. The slaveries they put upon themselves today, 
they will impose tomorrow upon the whole world. Is man never to rest, never to be free? The time will come when you in your turn will be forced away to take your chance upon strange planets and in dreary, abominable places beyond the stars. An end to progress. Make an end to this progress now. Let this be the last day of the scientific age. Make this space come the symbol of all that drives us and destroy it now. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. That was a song by Sam Barsh, an excellent musician whose work I use frequently in the episode intros, paired with some clips from a movie by H.G. Wells, or based on a book, rather, by H.G. Wells. Uh, That movie is titled Things to Come. I highly recommend you check it out. It parallels some of the things that we discuss in today's episode with the great andreas exertus who makes his eighth appearance here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast he's been on the show eight times we've also done a swap cast together and he's been on another show i used to do twice so all together 11 times so go back in the back catalog and listen to those older episodes if you haven't already and enjoy this episode with andreas exertus of course support us on patreon or substack if you would like the show uh, uncensored ad free and all of the amazing stuff for the extended outro uh, and all of the bonus stuff towards the end of the conversation of course if you're not supporting the show then you're not getting the full conversation parts of today's conversation we're cut out. We talked about Bosnia, the mysteries going on there, the pyramids, and why these pyramids are not acknowledged to this day. Very sensitive topic. And we go deep. So go and check that out by supporting via the Patreon. You can go to My Family Thinks I'm Crazy on Instagram or go to MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy.com and there you'll find all the links to sign up on the patreon or the Substack or the rockfin if you prefer video content all of our video episodes are there for the most part so without further ado let's get on with the show of course after these great ads from our sponsors All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are here. We are back with our guest today, who you heard about in the intro, Andreas. Thank you so much for joining me, my friend. It's great to have you back on. So before we get into what we're planning on talking about today, you want to tell the folks a little bit about what you're doing regularly in case they haven't heard from you or heard of you before, although I highly doubt that because you've been on this show many times. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm Exertus, or like I'm Andreas, but I have like Exertus is kind of the group, and we've been trying to build up more of a community around this information, so getting it into the hands of more people, and so we've got the Discord running, and we're trying to do more call-in kind of a thing, bringing like a coast-to-coast vibe, but have people 
working together more on, you know, breaking down these ideas and seeing different people looking at the same problem through different lenses. Because sometimes we'll talk about one thing one night and then a different group will have a different way of looking at it a different night. That's happened where we're talking like Twin Peaks and then someone else is like a numerologist. And so then they're looking at it completely differently. So it's been interesting bringing like more people's perspectives into the community and showing them also. That's been part of it. But yeah, also I've just been doing a lot of like Tartaria research and Ian Crossland and I have been talking more about like nanotechnology, transhumanism and futurism and things like that. So that's been coming up a lot. And I've been talking more to programmers and designers and thinking more about that, about like, you know, the future of AI as it like destroys and recreates our world. Mm. So a little bit of both. Yeah, a lot of different things, which I commend you for your ability to retain all this info. We've had many long conversations on the show before about a variety of topics that you're versed in. And I'm curious about St. John the Baptist, given my research into Skull and Bones. And I was even on Godlike Productions, which is an old forum that still is running and just looking through some threads on skull and bones and one really adamant poster who, you know, allegedly was in skull and bones as a lot of posters like to, you know, just give themselves that who knows if it's true or not. But he said, it's all about St. John the Baptist, just looking to St. John the Baptist and these other people in the posts were like, why? And then another guy's like, cause he's the headless one. And another, and I have, I've already been kind of familiar with this trail it just kind of, the forum just kind of reignited it for me. But it got me thinking like, oh yeah, you know, I haven't really gone down this St. John the Baptist rabbit hole. I've heard a bit about these decapitated saint myths where the saints, or I mean myths, that's a stretch, I should say, uh, accounts, because they are, you know, they're not myth mythological. They're just, you know, stories whether they're true or not is up for debate. But apparently when saints would get their heads cut off, certain saints, they would report them, their bodies decapitated, reaching down, picking up their head and holding it and then walking some, you know, miles to where they felt like, okay, this is a suitable place to drop dead. And then that place became like a holy area and that, you know, the whole thing about relics and how you know the body parts of saints were used in statues and temples and all sorts of other you know architectural features so it just got me down this whole rabbit hole and then you tell me well mark you know saint john the baptist was someone who you know kind of filled jesus in on a lot of things paraphrasing of course you you put it a different way but you know jesus i i didn't really know that i just hear all these names and i'm not really sure who fits into the timeline where i just recognize that they're biblical characters my own ignorance i should look into it more but let's get into it what what made you research saint john the baptist and where should we start well okay you know like first you know if you ever watch jesus christ superstar it gets you kind of interested in jesus and you're like jesus is pretty cool right and the cool Jesus is an approachable Jesus. So once you're able to contemplate yourself as Jesus, and there's probably a better example. Some people might like Adult Swim's Black Jesus, or some people might like some other, you know, there's a bunch of different examples of something that'll let you contemplate being in the mode, right? But Jesus is such a cool character 
because he's relatable. John the Baptist is way cooler and maybe way less relatable. I mean, not necessarily cooler in the sense that like he's the son of God and divine in all these ways, but Jesus is approachable as a character in some ways that I think John the Baptist is almost not. Like John, like Jesus is a very interesting person that you can live like and is setting up a model for how you're supposed to be and is the perfect sinless person. And that's awesome, right? But John the Baptist has this crazy past. And if you like contemplate, he's naked in the desert. He's upsetting everybody. He's got like wild hair and he's eating fried locusts or not at all. And he's all about screaming, repent, like it's the end is now, like not in the sense that the apocalypse is like next year, but that everything is ending all the time. And it's your chance right now to get on the train of divine light. And that's also like the differences of what John the Baptist was preaching about are not that far from what Jesus was talking about. And they were cousins, right? Like according to the Bible, you've got this character who's, you've got Zacharias, the priest, and Elizabeth is the wife of Zachariah and their child is John the Baptist. And it also has a divine kind of story. Right. And again, like not taking away from Jesus, but it's just, it's also its own interesting story. (laughs) It's this idea of this priest who's got a kind of old wife and she's friends with Mary and Gabriel, the angel who is according to a lot of these stories, there's this angel that's a messenger And Gabriel has come to Mary to tell her that Jesus, the son of God, will be born through her, which is like amazing. Like admittedly, it's a great story. It's really impressive. And it's a better it's a better miracle. All of that's true. But the same miracle is, you know, this old lady who is with Zachariah, who thinks she can't have a kid. She's told she's going to have a kid and that this kid's going to like lead people to repent and to the establishment of the law and will reveal the Messiah, which is pretty sweet also. And so it's kind of, kind of awesome. And maybe a little bit more pathos is a little bit more struggle there. Like Jesus has a lot of struggle because he dies, you know, he's sacrificed before he can get to age to be a rabbi and to write Torah and epistles and things like that. But John the Baptist is never going to be the Messiah. They're just there to tell you that everything you're doing is wrong and it's about to be time to do what's right and what's right is coming. But it's like an abstract concept. It's like the invisible signs of divine grace, of, of visible grace. Like there's visible signs of what is coming, but they don't have the established law yet. And they're seeing all of this misuse of the temple and misuse of the law. And it comes down to slavery, too. There's lots of people that are trading their children and themselves because they can't afford to pay the debts because they had to borrow animals to graze lives, you know, um, land that they've leased back from the government. So they lose everything at the certain point. And more and more people are actually in debt bondage at this point. Like there's a few people who basically own people at that point. And they're saying, if you do this baptism ritual, you're cleansed, right? If you're cleansed, not just of your sin, but of your debts. And so it becomes really popular as a movement. And this is a movement that's going on before John the Baptist too. This is a movement that's existing, right? Like the Essenic movement. And so the the Q document, like the Qumran document, in Qumran, there's a group called the Essenians, right? And they're 
there's a, a debate whether John the Baptist was himself one or how influenced he was, but it seems rather clear that he's influenced by this because he's in the same place that they are and he's doing the same thing, which is a continuous baptism. It's not you get baptized once, you know, even today there are followers that are following this tradition and do this like at least weekly to get baptized every week. And he's practicing like you're washing your body, you're washing the forehead and you're doing um, a three points thing to a fourth so there's like a quaternity thing that has to do with God, the heavenly mother, the coming of the Messiah, and like also like yourself. You know, it's not quite the same as like the cross, but the cross symbol seems very similar to this. And they're, you know, anyway, like this is a group that's already existing before John the Baptist. So then John the Baptist, he gets born into this time where there's all this debt and his father, before he's born, says, oh, yeah, an angel That'd be crazy. You know, like God sending symbols. I don't believe it. Basically that my, I would have a son, probably not. And so he's made deaf and mute for like six to eight months or nine months. I forget if he's, I think what's another thing is that John the Baptist is born early. And this is one of those things in legends is some people are born earlier. I think it has more to do with like a numerological thing. Like there's a value, you're stronger, you're born. I don't know. But like, regardless, when he's born, his father all of a sudden can speak and hear again. And he's like healed, right? When his son is born, because then he believes the miracle. So there's a bunch of there's a bunch of things like that happen to Zechariah, the priest, but also showing that the priesthood is at a point where they haven't been following the covenants. So they're not actually getting the celestial miracles. They're not experiencing the divine. And so now they're trapped in a humanist perspective for maybe like a hundred years or more at this point. And so it's so common to just kind of think that there is nothing or that it is already what it is. And they're already doubting. And so all of a sudden here comes this age where people are saying, no, divine celestial magic is real and it's coming and it's beyond humanist and all that. And you should repent, right? And like, you should repent because you're not being perfect and being perfect is also the thing. So like being a, a sinner just means not achieving perfection. And it becomes a very different thing because a sin then is just missing the bullseye of an, you know, your target, like at all. Like, so then it's a personal thing. And then there's different groups that are dealing with the different ways. The Marcionites and the Ebionites later are Christians that are thinking this way, but we get into them later, you know, but there are, groups that continue to think that we should just be practicing Jewish law. Like we just need to do it the way this rabbi Jesus was doing it. But John the Baptist gets arrested at a certain point. And then Jesus ends up becoming pretty popular in his own right. And from there also it spreads like this culture of the baptism religion, because there's already problems in Jerusalem and eventually it's clear I think even probably in the 40s, you know, that Jerusalem will fall. Like it's going to come to a point where it's going to be assimilated or broken up and it's not going to hold together, whether it be because of Rome or because of interior problems. Like it's already looking like it's going to become secularized really quickly and that the government's losing control and the Sadducees are losing control. And so they're saying, hey, the answer is Jubilee, right? Like if you were, if you forgive the debts, 
of all these people, then you won't have this problem. And a lot of people end up saying similar things. And there's been examples of things that have happened prior to that. Like in Greece, you have Solon and Solon has a forgiveness of debt and a reduction of debt and a a freeing of slaves and a forbidding of certain kinds of wage slavery, of selling your bodies for time and things like that. Start to be those kinds of laws that already emerged. So they're thinking we should do something in that order, but even more revolutionary. And, you know, again, John the Baptist being in prison is suppressed in certain areas, but he's still very popular. And so before Jesus has the a following, right? John the Baptist has a following and a much bigger following that it starts out with, like you start with this John the Baptist following, Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist gets arrested. Jesus goes on to gain a following that is, mm, I would say not quite as big as John the Baptist following, but rather maybe proportionally similar in size. And then he dies. When Jesus dies, Paul expands his following because the fall of Rome happens, right? And eventually with the fall of Rome, anyone who's been taught this belief spreads out very quickly. So actually the fall of Rome makes Christianity spread to a bunch of different places. And when that happens simultaneously, that makes it the bigger arching idea that it's Christianity. And that so that brings a lot of problems because like the idea of Christianity isn't exactly the way Christ, when I say Christianity, I don't mean like what Jesus was doing. I just mean like what Pauline Christians were talking about hundreds of years after Jesus's death, which is a very different thing, right? Because Jesus is living a life that it sounds like is following John the Baptist practices. And that also complicates our Bible. And you can see like, if you look at the Qumran documents, again, where John the Baptist lived, they have different beliefs. I mean, even to this day, like the Mandian, the Mandians are a, they believe that they're, okay, like we have Jewish, Christian, Islam, Mandians are right there in the middle of that. And they also think they came from Adam and they come straight from the source and they practice, and they believe John the Baptist is their major prophet. And they have a book. It's like the, um, Ginza Rabbah, right? Which is their, their Bible. And it has all of the versions of John the Baptist and the book of Adam and their version of reality, which has to do with like darkness and light and that you have to constantly be baptized and drinking of like flowing water and flowing water is a major thing for them and forgiving of debt. And it's just, you can't even lend, you have to give. And these are the kinds of rules that Christianity at first, you hear Jesus talking about that, right? Like don't lend, just give, you know, like make sure that you can lose it if you're giving it. And don't let your yes be yes and your no be yo. Like they're trying to destroy debt slavery. And that very quickly dissipates because it becomes, well, if you come to us, we can give you the blood of Jesus and therefore you can be forgiven and live forever, right? You can be a servant in heaven. So I I would say just that's not what Jesus was practicing. But looking at the earlier documents, like John the Baptist is saying, forgive debts, He's also telling people to live uh, piously, but frugally, like give up all sorts of material possessions and stop worrying about that. And it seems like he's really interested in things that are associated with what we would consider like Jainist monks, like the fact that he's naked, right? That's something that conservative, pious monks would do in ancient India because they would give up clothing and say that they don't need anything of that kind. So there's, it, it also seems like some, some people say, oh, Jesus went to India and there's, there's, it's possible, but also at the same time, there's so much influence from 
East Asia and India at that time going on in Africa and Alex- North, Af- North Africa and Alexandria and Egypt, that it's completely plausible that Dharmic principles and consequentialism are making their way into the Essenian community as well. So, I mean, it just there's a lot of reasons why John the Baptist is super interesting because Jesus essentially meets him and gets a lot of, he's like, okay, this is how I'm going to practice the faith. And John the Baptist confirms that. But again, we're looking at our modern Bible. If we look at the old Qumran documents, we can see that a lot of the books of Mark and Luke like Luke doesn't ever show, uh, I think it's Luke that doesn't ever show John the Baptist saying, oh, you're the bird, you're the dove of light. You know, like it's missing that part, that part's injected into Mark. But Mark is built from pieces of the Q document and a lot of the Isaiah, right? Like they're quotes from Isaiah, which it just says like paraphrase to, and then they rewrite Isaiah in there because they don't actually have the, <laughs> the surety that Jesus quoted Isaiah perfectly. They just quote Isaiah perfectly when they rewrite it in scripture. So it's like, oh, how did he, how do we know he said that scripture verbatim, right? So it's all put together later. So we don't really know that John the Baptist is saying, oh, Jesus is truly the son of God. And that could be anachronistic. It could be that we've added that later and that they're just two simultaneous people believing in the same thing, right? Like that there is like this dead jubilee that needs to occur. And John the Baptist gets in trouble first. Oh, the other thing is Mandians and the, the John the Baptist followers wear their outfits or this white kind of robes that they wear all the time to keep out evil, right? And they're called Rastas, which is, I think, I don't know for sure, but I feel like probably where Rastafarians get that word. So I, f- I find that also interesting because there's a lot of, you know, you can think of it like John the Baptist is Peter Tosh and Jesus is Bob Marley. Like John the Baptist is a little bit harder for people to accept, I think. That's a really neat <laughs> reggae religion analogy. I like that. And I'm <laughs> grateful that you're here to break a lot of this down because, you know, I didn't pay attention in Sunday school and the Catholics weren't exactly explaining all of this to us in plain English. Did I lose you there for a second? Are you still with us? I think I'm here. What's up? Oh, okay. Sorry about that. So, yeah, it, it, it's great to have you here to get into all this. Now, as I hear you describe this sort of, well, we could call them kind of breaks in the chain of the origins of Jesus, this is information that's been filled in over time with the discovery of certain documents. Did the Dead Sea Scroll finding contribute to this information? I mean, the, you know, what we know about the Essenes and Jesus and where he might have learned a lot of his mysticism? Yeah, so tons of things. I mean, for one thing, like a lot of people will doubt one source or another source. Some people will say, okay, well, the Mandeans, they say that they are descendant from Jews that escaped, you know, into Mesopotamia after the fall of Jerusalem. But how can we prove that? Well, you know, you look at their linguistics and you see that they're speaking a Mandaic is an Aramaic language. And so you can see it's a contemporaneous language. It's not the Hebrew that was written in the churches. It's the actual language that was spoken at the time of the people. So it corroborates in that way. The same thing with Nag Hammadi and the Dead Sea Scrolls. We start to see, you know, in the Nag Hammadi specifically, there is the same linguistic characteristics of Aramaic, which are being used. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, even more, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls has all of the same documents, like the Book of John, the Book of Adam, and they're, the Qumran document is a particular one that really bothers people. 
because some people are like, oh man, the Qumran document, this doesn't say anything about the divinity of Jesus, but it's not really like to say or to not say about, that's not really what the Qumran document does. What it does is it shows that the way the Bible was put together was that, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not really Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John probably, right? And the John is also, there's like four or five different Johns. Like John is like Jonas is also like Ionis or something like that. But there's like beloved John, there's John the Revelator, Revelation, there are different Johns as well. So it's important to also remember like he's a specific, you know, Jonas character. And he's also probably in his life thinking of himself as, you know, you're named after the prophet Jonas who refused to do the thing and was forced into the belly of the fish and you know he's i i imagine like i just contemplate that would be something <laughs> that would be on your mind if that was your name you know but with the breakups of you know different ver different ver where were we at with the different versions of religion was that we we're breaking up christianity or yeah well you know how we can better understand christ through what's been uncovered in the last oh, right. the Qumran, three, four hundred years, right? Because if you look at John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, like you can see that they're made of a lot of the time the Qumran document, but not in a bad way. It's that you've got sometimes people have a narrative and they're telling a story. So, like, let's say this is forty years after or something, the death of somebody, like a, of a prophet. You could say it's Mark Luther, Luke or John, but then the school is telling that story or even it's someone who's keeping it and getting it written down. They might have like the general story, which is a big thing is this is actually telling like a saga, like this is a rising action with pathos, this is the life, this is, it, it almost reaches level of myth once it becomes a story versus pure data. And so the Qumran document is more pure data and it has a lot more quotes from Jesus. Like almost all of it is quotes instead of a story. It's not telling you that Jesus was born or that Jesus was resurrected. And people are like, oh, well, it's missing from this document. It's, it's not really about that. So it's not, I don't use it to like prove or disprove other aspects of like the life of Jesus. But what it does do is it tells you these are the things that were being said and they're not the way that they're presented later in Mark. And there's injections in Mark that make it look like John the Baptist is all of a sudden worshiping Jesus in a way that probably, you know, this is probably injected. Mm. And it's, it's, that's also missing in circumstances from Luke. But it's sort of allowed because he's seeing things and so that they're like oh well that must be the dove is obviously like this is just the holy spirit trinity and that becomes like the major thing is they just start downplaying everything because it doesn't have to make sense you just right. have to believe it right 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 and they seem to be from my maybe more secular perspective when i was younger i was raised catholic i tried to kind of go outside of that perspective to find truth and i eventually came back to spirituality and religion with with a different perspective thanks to many different authors and it always struck me as like christ may be real but what this church is doing doesn't represent who this person was and that was evident to me in just the fact that this guy is dead in front of everybody we're all sitting there looking at this you know statue of a dead guy and Sure, that may be a crude interpretation of something that's supposed to be. But yeah, if you are emulating something and right. you're emulating death, and we've seen what that's done to a culture, versus if we had access to like Jesus's life and had lost the the book about how he died, 
Just think about. <laughs> well, and this is a kind of like mystery that I think is presented to people. And I don't know that everybody necessarily notices it, but I noticed that, okay, something's not right here. This doesn't feel like, you know, it just didn't gel with me and call that intuition, call it just, you know, rebelliousness that any young person feels, you know, about their environment. But eventually I got into all this stuff and as you're describing this, it, it kind of reminds me, and I'm not a Freemason, but it reminds me of what I've read about Freemasonry in Hiram Abiff's legend and how all of these secrets that linked Freemasonry to the truths of the Bible were gone with Hiram Abiff when he died. And that's why they tell the Freemasons this legend so that, you know, hey, we're a, a lodge without a lore. We're looking for it. We got to find it. This guy died. We're kind of recovering it. Does this, you know, does, does this theme track with you? Is this something that you've noticed? Am I off here? Or, you know, do, yeah. does it seem like the Freemasons are these Indiana Jones looking for these lost pieces of the Bible in this well, story? Everybody ought to be trying to find the lost truth, right? I think the Jesuits are doing that too. And it's it's kind of interesting, like the Jesuits more and more, if you watch their videos, like they're, or just the Catholic Church, like they've become fully like atheistic in the sense of the God is no longer personified as a man, which is a decent step forward, I think, because it, you know, I mean, a big problem that made people nihilists, and then a lot of people are unknowing nihilists because they start out as thinking, I don't think God's a single parent who writes books. I think that the universe is made by something more instead of going, yeah, run with that. People were told that's evil. You know, it's, it's really a weird situation that happened to think that they're stepping out of that now. And they're understanding that we're running towards an Omega point. You know, it's not just this thing down from above watching you. It's so it's, I think that's also cool that it's becoming more Gnostic even in its outlook, but Jesus is an interesting idea, right? Like, because we have plenty of prophets, like you've got the worst and the best of prophets, you know, that's one thing. And you've got super dudes, you've got Hercules, who's pretty impressive. And you've got gods on earth, like avatars of gods, just straight up Krishna, which is, you know, he can play a trick on you, throw you into a universe in his pupil and laugh at you. You know, that's amazing. But Jesus is a cool idea because it's the idea of God restrained to the flesh, like to the human. The human's a beast with God soul already in it. So it's an interesting idea, right? That already there's a kind of handicap of what it is to be human. And that's an interesting challenge. Like, I bet I could do it. You know, if I'm God and I can do anything, I could live a sinless life in the life of a beast, right? Like, why not? That's kind of interesting because it also jives with this idea that John the Baptist is looking for someone who already can prove that's possible while trying in. And, and what does that mean? Like, cause it's a lifestyle and it can't really just be written. It's like the Tao because this flowing river thing that seems to be constant is that you're changing the physical anything and everything, but that's all based on again, visible signs of invisible divine principles. So there's, it's not that, and this is why I think some atheistic nihilists miss the point is they're like, okay, well, somehow things just kind of, we end up with numbers. No, it's probably that numbers, justice, geometry, straight lines and curves don't exist in nature, but we still need them because they exist as divine principles, probably primordially. It's probably before everything, 
that curves and straight lines exist. So, I mean, that it's just, that kind of brings it back to this idea that there is like a cosmic celestial architecture or symmetry or, you know, again, divine principles, I think is a decent or, or visible signs of invisible grace, you know, something like that. Like there still is that. And so then John the Baptist is constantly saying like, you know, repent and be part of that world until he gets killed. Right. Like it's to the point where the story goes that there's a daughter whose mother makes her ask for the head of John the Baptist from the king. And so the king takes the head of John the Baptist and gives it to her served on a platter. Right. I feel like I, I missed the point where I was supposed to respond. Can you continue elaborating on that? I, I'm sorry. I must have blanked out. No, that's all right. I don't know which part, like the head on the platter. Yeah, because as soon as I was thinking about something you said prior to that, and then as soon as you said that, it was like <laughs> snap out of it kind of the moment because that's really what we were planning Maybe on divine talking principles, about. Though? We could go to the divine principles if well, you think about divine it's, principles. It's such a lofty topic, and I do, you know, what you said about the Gnosticism and the Omega point, like... It does feel like my experience with the Catholic Church had timing, like in that sense. Like when I was growing up, it was what, like the ni late 90s, early 2000s. That's when I was exposed to the Catholic Church. You know, that's when I was there. And and it does feel like since then it, it's changed a bit. But that's a whole nother topic that I'm really not prepared to go into but i do want to explore it one day but i did i did check out like on youtube there's like some kid francis friar casey or something like that there's some dudes that are like catholic and have a youtube channel and podcast and they like re they did a reaction to george carlin and seinfeld they're just friars wearing like friar habits and the dude's pretty chill he's got like a habit that belonged to some 90 year old friar before him who belonged to some guy before him or something like that like they keep their habits and stuff like that seem very Jedi. And, you know, you can tell when someone's a little deeper, right? They're doing this, obviously not because they think that God is this, just this like dude with a beard, you know, and that's cool. I think that's interesting when you've got people that are interested in science and metaphysics. Well, and it seems like that's always been in the interior of these institutions. The exterior forces what maybe turns people into these nihilists, as you described, because there's that material incentive that's just given to any institution it definitely exceeds that when you start talking about the catholic church and their power and the holy roman empire well, they're like microsoft though you know you gotta imagine <laughs> like you're this huge conglomerate and imagine you're like the center at center of this thing the intel intelligentsia and all of a sudden you're getting in trouble for things that the grandparent your grandparents or parents said that now is being echoed by the plebeians from a, a million miles away. You've got people in America and Russia and around the world yelling at, you know, at you. But really, it's always been at the center of Constantinople, the Vatican or anything like they're working towards science. They're working towards math. Metaphysics really is kind of a Jesuit French term. You know, it's. <laughs> he kind of came up with it in a lot of terms that people are still barely grasping onto now. Even like Terrence McKenna tried to introduce or repopularize Jesuit terms like the new sphere, the omega point, right? These kinds of ideas of singularity, right? Those are all things that really come from Catholic Jesuit metaphysics. And in the 60s, 
there was like an argument, you know, and people were really upset, like Teilhard Chardin changed the church. Just this month, Pope Francis quoted Teilhard Chardin. So I think we're chill now, but a lot of people hate him, right? There's the Society of St. Pius X. So there's a huge faction of anti-Novo Ordum, like new order Pope, new Vatican II people. And then they're trying to keep things in this old way. The problem with that, in my opinion, is you're latching on to the Pauline Latin mass, which is cool. Like it's a dramatic mass that's not that different than, than Freemasonry because you're just latching on to the vain repetitions of the ritual. And maybe you got to look at like, are you trying to emulate Christ or are you trying to emulate the Pauline Catholics? Because the Pauline Catholics killed Donatus and ate them. You know what I mean? Like literally cannibalized people in arconic rituals. And it's important. They're like, oh, we shouldn't forget. Like, no, but like, it's important to remember, like, who are we trying to emulate? Right. So I kind of think like the Chardinians are cool. And I mean, I love territory and I think Chardinians are cool, but also the Catholics in the 60s, you had Bernard Lonergan. And Lonergan's like one of the, he's such a heady philosopher that he can't even get in trouble because no one has any idea what he's saying, but he's talking about metaphysics all the time. And he's saying, okay, if you're an atheist, I can handle that because that's just like, not that's not very different than the way I've heard, an, you know, a, a mom from Islam describe God. You're talking about these maybe more Gnostic concepts and I'm not going to call you a heretic because so many people will, and I'm just not going to do that. And he's so trying to digest other people's and he's saying, okay, maybe evolution is worship. If everything serves God, maybe atheists are serving God. How is everything serving God? Maybe I'm not supposed to mess with their, and he didn't call it Dharma, but he starts to really, because he's listening to Eastern philosophies as well, he's thinking about that. And even the idea of just physics, like there's, there just has to be things that are unaware of what systems they're in, right? You might act in a simulation differently if you're on candid camera and know it, right? So there's all sorts of questions that emerge in metaphysics. So now like the Jesuits and like the Catholic Church really have embraced Lonergan and I think it's smart because also the world's changed. Like the way the world was a hundred years ago, what people believed and what they needed and how they were trying to acquire happiness. Like the pursuit of happiness had a different strategy and route. And so now you have to uh, meet people, I think, on a different level. And that, okay, so on one level, it's sad because it's the closer you step to humanity, it may be further a step away from divinity, right? But on the other hand, people are more and more needing something that's accessible. And it, I think Thomas Aquinas, Lonergan, most of these these great philosophers were spiritualists who were also mathematicians because they were trying to wrestle with experimental proof of what they experienced. And most of the problems in the church have been saying, well, it doesn't matter what you experience. You know, you just have to believe. And that doesn't, you know, it has to be consequentialism like there has to be consequences that prove <laughs> what actions lead to right right which yeah and i think you know to bring it back down to base level it seems like the further we look into these structures that have oppressed people historically the people on the inside have this inner quest that you know, I think supersedes maybe the consequences or, you know, the ends justify the means sort of thing. I mean, think of all the countries that were conquered 
to have their relics and their artifacts taken in the name right. of knowledge, right? And I mean, how much of that do we still have access to is debatable. It depends on which empires won and lost and, you know, what artifacts that's a, were saved. That's a good one also. The Mandeans, right? You do the baptism thing and the John the Baptist cult. So a lot of their books were burnt. And so you only have books going back like a thousand years. Mm -hmm. But there are a bunch of Mandean um, magic spell bowls. They're like, they're, they're, they have a, like a ring of prayer written around summoning bulls right and so these are like a thousand years older or even older than that and they go back even further than any example that we have of some of these stories so it shows that they probably again this tradition probably predates john the baptist but he you know he popularized it and said anyone can be a part of this and tried to make it available to people in the center of jerusalem well and this is why I love having these conversations with you, because part of what really excites me about doing these podcasts in general is being able to take all of the resources that we have access to now and try to look beyond what was possible for people maybe 100, 200, 300 years ago and try to understand the world they were in with our resources I mean, it seems like a difficult task but it's a challenge i i like and part of what we're intending to talk about here is you know skull and bones and why this secret society fits into yale and you know the whole american zeitgeist and you know you know christianity is part and parcel to this whole history that I've been looking into from the onset of the New Haven colony. You know, they had this sort of Calvinist philosophy at the heart of it, at which evolved and changed. There's the great awakening that came through and just really shook up New England. And what I was kind of really proud to learn is that Connecticut and New England in general was this sort of, you know, I always use the term melting pot, but that's not quite accurate. It's more like they were baking what became the Constitution here in New England. They were baking what became the American Republic here through experimentation, through these different Christian theocracies that were kind of bubbling up, Providence, New Haven, Hartford, Boston, and so on and so forth. And it just, it kind of boggles the mind when you throw in this perspective that, oh yeah, no, they weren't just all Bible thumping the way we think of evangelic evangelists today. They were occultists. They were infusing things from European folklore that were banned by, let's say, the Church of England or the Church of Rome or whatever you know, place they came from. They were bringing it here where they had this newfound sense of freedom. And that's where a lot of... Um, really occult and esoteric threads develop and become woven literally into the fabric of what it means to become an American. And again, like what we were saying with the church and how Christians take for granted this Gnostic thread that's woven through Christianity, I think many Americans take the esoteric thread woven into American history for granted. And that's kind of what I want to look into deeper and Skull and Bones, for me, sits at the heart of that conversation because it feels like Yale University, Skull and Bones, they're vestiges of European power that planted themselves in America. And I wonder how loyalist Yale has been over the years, especially considering, and I even 
worry about saying this because Yale employs 60% of the people that live in my state. So they're like incredibly powerful just in the state that I live in. Not that the state of Connecticut is a tyrannical government or anything, but when you look at people like Saifula Khan, who's in a lawsuit with Yale right now, it certainly feels like they have tyrannical power to say somebody's a rapist, you know, basically throw their green card in jeopardy and make them a sort of political prisoner here in America. I mean, I don't know. The yeah, guys. I wonder if Yale is really, I was like, in terms of whether or not they're like loyalists, I think that's an interesting question because how many British lords would, I think any British lord ever in history, you could question whether or not they were loyalist because who are they loyal to? And like different monarchies or to parliament, to British law, to Pax Britannica, like these are different things to be loyal to. Mm. So it's a complicated question. Right. And I'd, I'd also say that the idea that they're all British lords is also kind of in question too, because they're also Germanic. Mm. And so there's a bigger picture even of nobility and what they think about as like the house of dragons or the house of benevolent dictators or something that there's maybe like this almost confusion at that level. The skull and bones thing also is like, I don't know because on one hand it's so easy to be like, Oh, they're clearly doing like necromancy. But again, they're so interested in John the Baptist. It makes you wonder because it doesn't sound like maybe they're just totally doing some like vile inversion, but it could also be there's, you know, the story that it's not the femur, but the, the humorous bone, because John the Baptist, like the skull and bones, if you think of usually the two femurs, but it could be it's a humorous bone. So John the Baptist has an, um, another relic in his head, which is his right arm, which is considered to be an important thing. And I think there's oh. something about his leg too. But there, of course, there's other characters that have heads and skulls that are important. But it is interesting because he's a character that's supposed to have risen from the dead also like Jesus. Right. So it is that kind of myth that he's very powerful and maybe isn't the son of God, but is co-heir to the son of God. And right. that's maybe the secret mystery or one of the the big mysteries of Freemasonry of, of this whole idea is that you're not supposed to be like a servant of lords, right? Like that Christ is revealing and John the Baptist is revealing that you're co-heirs to Christ. And so you're all going to be equals, right? There's like that joke where like Jesus is in heaven and like two monks walk in, one's a Franciscan and one's a Jesuit and the Franciscan comes in and Jesus is like, thank you. I hope you enjoy heaven. And then the Jesuit walks in and says, excuse me, Jesus, I think you're in my seat. You know, like that idea of like equality with Jesus is actually like, it's pretty interesting because most of the time it's super antithetical to what we have been taught. We're like, oh no, like Jesus is so awesome. It's like, well, yeah, he's the son of God. All that's true. But then at the same time, he says all this other stuff than that. Like he says that plus that you're awesome. You're as equal. Right. You can do it. You're not well, just supposed to take his sacrifice and get a free ride. I think that's where a lot of people, especially today in this kind of conservative conspiracy world, people want to point the fingers at the occult, and there's good reason to do that. There's a lot of dark magic going on. But I think people mistake mysticism for the occult and this sort of mystic path, this higher calling, this uniting with the creator, this sort of truth that we're all, you know, infused with the 
Christ consciousness or this, you know, cosmic yeah, this is no worse than the NIV Bible. Like we're looking for a different <laughs> translation, but I think the real scare is when we get to like the goats versus the sheep, you know, it's like people that are pretending to be good telling you that you just have to give them everything or something and then they will help you or they will make sure that God helps you. You know, that is, that's kind of the thing is they've exploited the whole idea. And it's always been about that. It's always been about how Sadducees used to exploit people because you had to buy tokens, you had to buy like temple shekels from them that they would take back when you gave your, you know, you'd have to give in temple shekels for your sins and for your atonements. And then they would take them in the back and then they would sell them again. So it was just like racket they were running, right? For like forgiveness of sins. So we need to get to a point of debt jubilee. And that constantly is the thing that's brought up. I mean, they've talked about like September 11th is the debt jubilee, right? That was the prediction. The 2001 September 11th should be the debt jubilee. And it's, you know, (laughs) certain kinds of credit card records were lost, certain kinds of jubilees were had, right? But I think that it's still something that needs to happen on a much broader scale. And maybe that's also something that they're talking about with the Klaus Schwab and everything else is this idea of a debt jubilee. So it could be that they're using it for, you know, to bring it to the most literal purpose. Yeah, I mean, it adds a whole nother dimension to the, you know, goings on of the elite and what they're really after. And that's kind of at the heart of, I think, learning about skull and bones and bringing it back to Freemasonry and St. John the Baptist and all that. We hear a lot about British or English Freemasonry, even French Freemasonry, of course, American Freemasonry. But I just went down the German Freemasonry rabbit hole and I found some really interesting stuff. There's a place in Germany called Karlsruhe. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, but it's a planned city, much like what you see in Washington, D.C. with a sort of pentagram, although it's not a pentagram, it's more like a fan and they call it the fan city for that reason because there's a central palace and all these roads fan out from it different you know angles and it's just really incredible to find out that someone like thomas jefferson visited Karlsruhe and other planned cities in europe when they were drawing up with the plans for washington dc and of course new haven being america's first planned city i thought what's going on here where this german secret society implants itself into yale university a a outwardly patriotic university in many respects but it is so complicated as you say but is there anything that you've learned about German Freemasonry for that matter? Is that a rabbit hole you've dove down at all? <laughs> I mean, Freemasonry in Germany is so extent. You not you don't just have the Illuminati. You also have just in general Rosicrucianism. And because Rosicrucianism was more of a general order, you have like hermetic geometry and studies. But I think a lot of the geometry is coming because... The Freemasons had access to the books. Most people didn't have access to books. And so they were able to read books, especially things that were, you know, banned at that time. Like people had burned and gotten rid of a lot of the Spanish Inquisition. They got rid of and burned a lot of the Arabic books, but not all of them. And a lot of the Byzantine version of the Roman Empire had more of this Arabic work. And the Arabic work was making its way through Austria and through Hungary into Germany. And so they had access to all of that for centuries at that point. So I think studying Arabic alchemy and the idea that they were thinking of themselves as studying the more sciences, that's a big part of it as well, studying the more sciences. And you can look at any example of planned cities. 
beyond Europe, they're mostly Arabic, right? Like Spain's got every city is a planned city that is going in every direction. And it looks like some sort of arabesque and has something to do with the na- and the nature of God is hidden in the numbers of the different angles and points and everything, right? So it's usually even more sophisticated um, or maybe not. Maybe there are things that we're not even seeing, you know, <laughs> look, we're not using a, a enough of a geometry aware mind. I mean, I think that's also like, you can see though, the awareness and complexity by looking at like things like Edward Kelly and John D. They were clearly like amazed by the idea of numerology. They're like, wow, this is because these Hebrews are speaking Aramaic, but they're writing in Hebrew. still. what's the value to doing that? Is it just because they think it's cool and they took it to the, it's fully divine and it's built on math. And you can take that pretty far. I think we can find patterns and things that are like, if you're looking for patterns, more patterns emerge, but that also then builds on the complexity of the language. Right. So there are patterns. And I think that's, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question exactly about German Freemasonry though. I love the tangent we went down. I had no idea about Spain having all these planned cities. And yeah, the the Moorish influence on Europe is usually really undervalued. You know, even going into like these Moorish saints, these like, you know, it parades that are held in Europe where you'll see like a, a black man puppet kind of all these white people marching behind it. And you're like, what is that? Is this some right. kind of racist thing? And it's no, it's not racist at all. It goes back to this really old mystic sort of Moorish influence that Carl's Ruse flag is red and yellow. You know, it looks like the Spanish kind of like the classical Moorish colors as well. And it's in the South. So it's pretty close to like the Moorish black forests and places where, you know, like Strasbourg and places where there were a lot of Moors and where there is occidental Moorish art in France. Right. right. Well, and to kind of bring this into the you know general subject that i know you're super familiar with which is the old world conversation that's kind of where a lot of my impetus for this research came from i saw all this information about tartaria and i thought well new england's fairly old where do we fit into this this is where i live let me try to figure this out and it does seem like the university system has at least in the case of the native americans undervalued or underplayed their sophistication maybe even their connections to the rest of the world we see all these artifacts around new england hinting at european northern european cultures influencing you know and maybe even being you know sort of an origin point we also have new genetic information coming out that shows that caucasian and native american people have a similar origin as in like a similar ancestor which suggests maybe you know this fourth world fall atlantis and the diaspora spread out in this wide circle and that just happens to be where all these people are related and yeah, it's a big, deep topic, but when you look at what the universities have done, they've really just homogenized the stu- the you know, classic American archaeology, which makes room for Graham Hancock and these other, you know, sort of outliers to kind of be in the position they're at where they're not quite, you know, academics. Their work is very academic, but they're, they have to be like this kind of like academic rock star to like sell their books and whatnot <laughs> because, you know... It, they're you know otherwise they fall into this hole of like you know not having funding and you know nobody 
respects my research and my colleagues think I'm a wacko. Like this is the kind of thing that's happened in the university system. And yeah, there could be other, you know, causes for that, you know, sociological causes for that sort of thing to occur. The scientific movement may be to blame as well. But I've wondered if these people didn't have some sort of prior information about America and things that they wanted to secret away, you know, hence the Smithsonian Institute and all the things that people allegate them for, you know, covering up. I mean, yeah, if you look at the, the more that you see these stories that are emerging about like younger Dryas and everyone's saying, okay, well, clearly there's a lot of ecological disaster and it's already starting fights because people then are saying, this is our territory, you know, this is where we're from. You're saying that, the territories are different and have changed over history, you know, and that people have moved around. Like that's, you don't understand how offensive that is. But yeah, I think that's kind of interesting because they're talking about 10,000 years ago, right? Like, which isn't that long ago in like the scheme of things. But a lot of things have happened even more recently. And I think that's the thing that it's, if you start getting into it, that's when people start to really get upset. And for whatever reason, like it's it. We've talked before about the Aral Sea in Russia, which in 89 was still like one of the biggest lakes in the world, but they diverted a little bit of the water that the water would rain into from the bottom of the lake that ran the north. And so now it couldn't get back to the lake. And so by 2014, it dried up because the water was no longer getting to the lake. And so this ecological feedback loop dried up the lake. And there's just tons of these examples where in 40 years, we can destroy something or a volcano or some sort of ecological disaster or a geyser that's underneath a um, glacier or a moving glacier or change in the glaciers that cause them to crack apart and move, you know, or even just like water that is separated because of steam in some continental area becomes then solidified saline as the water separates, becomes fresh water. Fresh water then becomes glacial. The glacier then is moving over a period of time into the ocean and we have water that actually leaves. We have all sorts of crazy things that happen in places that become desert. And, you know, California is always a great example. You look at the gold rush and they blew up mountains, just blew them up and then washed them away with fire hoses. And we don't know, like some people say, like, was California an island? It's actually a great question because it forces you at least to look at the amount of ecological devastation that happened in California in the last few centuries and say that it's almost impossible to really tell what the Death Valley was or what parts of the desert used to be like in California. Like that's a that's part of the thing that's interesting. And similarly on the East Coast, you've got all these examples of if there's no like there's like the craters in the Carolina Bays, right? Those craters, which are probably caused by giant pieces of ice that melted away because we don't have any impact uh, material. I mean, there's it doesn't seem like there's very much impact material. So unless something completely disappeared, but the most likely thing is that this was literally pieces of ice that shot out from uh, near Beaver Bay in Canada. And there's other examples of giant earthquakes uh, from other volcanoes as well. When we start looking today at volcanoes, right? And we know that if something is closed up and today we're able to do amazing things and no one really talks about them. But when you're going and you have an oil company and you drill and you do certain kinds of liquefaction, they're always saying, oh, this could cause a volcano. One of the reasons they're saying that is because it also can alleviate the pressures that lead to geysers and volcanoes, right? It's one of the reasons why people are less afraid of um, Old Faithful, because Old Faithful is constantly releasing pressure 
So it's only accumulating a very small amount of pressure over a period of time. So it shouldn't explode into some super volcano anytime soon, even though it could, because we don't really know how big the pressure is being created over a period of time. We just know that a certain amount of it is being released. But that release is a good sign, right? Like there's some places where there's no release happening. And then that just builds up pressure until eventually you have major explosions. And I know I lived in Chile with Ian Crossland when there was a period of, we had like 13 volcanoes erupting while we were down there. And even, but just even right now, like you'll hear about volcanoes going off on islands, new islands being formed and things that are shifting. In Japan, there's a new island that's forming. In Polynesia, there's islands that are sinking. All of this is happening all the time. So like, I, I just feel like, yeah, New England's a place where we could experience, we could be seeing like a, a bunch of environmental disaster would very quickly shift our understanding of a civilization. And within 20 years to 75 years, they have no way to rebuild their infrastructure. It's perfect to take it over, steal anything that's functional and get rid of it. And I still think that's the most plausible situation. You're adding a a factor that I don't think was really considered until, you know, people like Velikovsky and now Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson are kind of pushing this forward, this idea that cataclysm has shaped humanity in this really drastic way. Uh, That leads me to wonder, are there places on the earth that we can understand through, you know, seismography and other sciences where maybe things are more stable, right? Because when I think of New England and I think of this greater general area that we're kind of attached to, this Canadian shield, this huge mass of granite that's like right on the other side of the Appalachian Mountains, I wonder if that somehow has stabilized this area and that's why we see very old ruins, things like dolmens, things like standing stones, things that would be knocked over in an earthquake, uh, hypothetically. I mean, you know, I don't know the exact architectural, you know, physics of some of these structures. Maybe they're incredibly stable and just don't appear to be so. But things like walls we know fall over time and crumble from, you know, seismic activity. And that still leaves the, you know, very unexplainable things like the rock wall in Texas, right? Where literally it's called Rock Wall, Texas. That's allegedly 400,000 years old. You know, I was looking at on one of my recent Substack posts, the uh, whole Pangea and how Pangea split apart. And then I was matching the shape of the continent with some out-of-place artifacts that people have found in the Americas. And hey, it's possible if humans were alive at that time, like these out-of-place artifacts suggest, that maybe there was a contiguous culture across this big landmass that was North America and Asia. And that's why we see such a similarity, at least in the stone structures in that place. And the same is true for Quandana, which is where we find a lot of pyramids, right? And pyramids on the conversation of seismic activity. uh, I wonder how stable those are under those sorts of conditions. Because in in Japan, where it's incredibly active, they mostly build wooden temples because stone temples just wouldn't last, right? So uh, I wonder if maybe the ancient peoples even knew, you know, we're using some sort of instruments, you know, which areas were better to build in than others. Ray, and aren't the pyramids at Giza built on top of geysers and... I forget which pyramid I know for sure. Mexico is built on top of a geyser as well. And wow. so there's a number of pyramids. Like, so the idea of a pyramid also is like a fire inside. You know, it doesn't really need 
triangle or anything. It just means like pyre is like fire and like pyramid. It's like inside of it is the fire. So it it sounds more like a factory or a thing. When people talk about how they're not just grave sites, like people tend to build them for some sort of magical purpose or something like that. So if it's on top of a geyser or on top of a volcano, I think also you could say volcanoes are kind of pyramids in a sense, like geological pyramids. They're producing the same reaction that, you know, a, a normal pyramid someone would hope could it could produce, I think. Wow, that's an incredible idea that uh, pyramids are artificial volcanoes. And we it's not something that we haven't entertained before. Jeffrey Drum, who's been on the show once, he talks about how the pyramids, to his chemistry mind, he's you know educated in the science of chemistry, he's and chemical engineering for that matter, he's looked at these sites and said, huh, they could have done something like this, this. It's all beyond my level of understanding. But on this note, there have been several mounds found, especially in Ohio, where iron forges were actually in the inside of the mound. Mm -hmm. So to your point, maybe the fire inside, it was this industrial or utilitarian purpose. It wasn't a purely spiritual or ritual, you know, art piece of architecture. It was a multi-purpose structure. Maybe the spiritual, you know, interpretation is what's been carried on throughout the, the decades, but it maybe had an original, more technical understanding at the core. Yeah, I can think of, you know, probably if you've got technology at that point, you're mystifying it and romanticizing it and thinking of it as this kind of magical thing. But also if it's from heat that's coming out of the earth, you're also probably dealing with gases and, you know, this thing that can kill you because it's so hot, you know, so if you can master it, like you'd be, you know, there. I can see how that would build into it more. Mm. But the gases, I mean, the oracles of Delphi, a lot of the people actually felt like they were getting, you know, messages from spirits because they were on an ethereal plane because they were breathing in. So I wouldn't be surprised also if some of it wasn't just, so volcanoes don't just produce, you know, destruction, right? Like they're going around all the time. They're going to produce sulfuric gases and different kinds of natural gases. And people might be thinking like, this is the voice of God or some sort of an opening to, you know, the other world. I mean, or as, you know, a, a volcano plug, maybe that's, <laughs> or a, a geyser plug, these pyramids kind of just like were inserted or built on top of these. You know, like stop this thing. Yeah. yeah stop it or, trouble. or harness it or harness the energy somehow. I mean, yeah, this is a totally new line of thinking for me as far as pyramids go. I'm really grateful you brought that up. It's definitely off track from where I'm about to take the conversation, but we will go back to pyramids. Please remind me if I forget, because I, I have seen your really great interviews with, or your videos with Samir Osmanagic. Osmanagic, yeah. Yeah. And he's somebody who, is that in Bosnia where those pyramids are? Totally. Yeah. Totally. And, and you've, yeah, so he's you've up traveled there out the... there, right? Yeah, he's in, so it's Visoko, which is a place in Bosnia. Right. And so it's also where like the Bosnian kings built on part of the steppe their little kingdom, which is on the way up to the top of the pyramid. That's mm -hmm. how big this is. I want to ask you more about that in, in a bit, but let's go back to the point where I was kind of like, 
godsmacked for a moment and couldn't think. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this concept of the headless one or John the Baptist as a sort of dead, disembodied being. I've even heard him described uh, being used by the Templars as a sort of oracle. Um, have you learned anything about that? What's the story there? I, I don't know enough about John the head, Baptist's head being used as an oracle. I know that there's three churches, well, there's two churches in one mosque that uh, claim that they have John the Baptist's head and that they try to say it's, you know, it's a relic of uh, magical power and that people have had miracles, you know, because of John the Baptist's head. It's supposed to be forbidden to practice necromancy in Jewish law. So it's only the kind of thing that would be possible if you become a Pauline Catholic. Because if you become a Pauline Catholic, you don't have to follow rabbinical law. Like at the point that you don't have to practice circumcision, you can probably practice necromancy, like basically is the thing. And so it's kind of an interesting open secret, I guess, about, you know, the use of relics that you can do it if you really, (laughs) you can be forgiven for anything, right? So, but I mean, yeah, I mean, which one's really his? The one in Rome, I doubt it, right? And the one in... The church in Jerusalem, maybe, maybe not. I think probably the Damascus Mosque, honestly, in Syria has maybe like if you had like something that was like the real head, but probably also isn't, you know, Mm. who knows? I mean, just the idea of having the head of John the Baptist, though, and they keep it in the church because then they can pray to the church, which becomes the center, you know, point of the temple. And, you know, a big part of the Catholics, is they say that John the Baptist and all of his cult, surrendered to Jesus, right? Like John the Baptist followed Jesus and in Acts, Paul tells the Baptists who are baptizing themselves, like, you know, like you guys are, should baptize. Like, well, we do baptize. Like, well, who do you, in whose name do you baptize? Like, well, John the Baptist. So, well, should we baptize in the name of Jesus Christ, the son of God? And like, okay. And they do it. And, the, and then they start like freaking out and speaking in tongues because they're like the most holy of men. So they're, you know, all of a sudden they're immediately empowered you know and possessed by like angels or something good like even though it seems kind of strange that they're speaking in tongues and they're like possessed it's like supposed to be a good sign you know so yeah i don't know exactly though about john the baptist's head being used specifically but it it just it also brings true to like a bunch of traditions right like the idea of like the crystal skulls and everything else well yeah absolutely and it's something that is at the uh, beginning of New Haven's history, the first church founded in New Haven has a tomb underneath it. And it's, you know, like the European churches, you know, it's blessed by that, you know, these relics of the early pioneer pilgrim, you know, founders of the colony. But when it comes to John the Baptist, you mentioned before he had a sort of apocalypse ideation, this sort of millenarianism as its complicated term, this sort yeah. of idea that well, the apocalypse also, yeah, is just, coming. Also, just on that note, though, on his head, like one of the traditions is that the Knights Templar stole John the Baptist's head and kept John the Baptist's head. And that would be how Freemasons got the relic of John the Baptist's head. And that it's, you know, again, it's like super holy and important relic. But yeah, I just don't know exactly how it's used. In terms of him being a millennialist or an eschatologist, like the idea that the end is near, it was, I think that's like the thing that's really interesting is the more you look at John the Baptist and some of the beliefs that were going on at the time, it starts to shift away from our understanding of Abrahamic religions more. So 
a lot of these religions share in the same idea that there's this angry, jealous God. You know, he's like vicious and gets upset and kills people, drowns people. The rainbow is a promise that next time it won't just be water. If we get prideful, it'll be fire. You know, like all this kind of stuff. And even the Christians were confused by it. So you lead to like Trinitarians eventually, but it starts with like Ebionites and Marcionites and Marcionites are saying, this must be a different God. Like people who love Marcion love Paul and thought Paul was great. He's like, well, what we'll do is we'll just get rid of the whole Bible except for Paul. And we'll just, cause we don't need all that old stuff. Like he was all about, you know, this new Pauline Catholicism. Right. And so in fact, we only have the canon of the Bible today because Marcion rejected all the other books at that time. Anyone could read any book they wanted, and it was just called The Good News. But Martian's like, no, a lot of that stuff is like outdated. We should really only be focusing on Pauline stuff. And the Ebionites are poor and like lame. And so they they need to really like, because the Ebionites are just trying to be like Rabbi Jesus. Like they don't get it. Like we have to be like Marcionites. So eventually like the regular Bible rejects this idea that Marcion creates which says that this is a new god this is a loving god and this is not the same as the old god but the gnostics latch onto it and a lot of people kind of have this idea that there's this ancient all everything then there's sort of like this lucifer architect that's created and then that's maybe what created us or something for the original source you know of everything but that the thing that created us hates us because it's Lucifer, or, you know, or, or whatever that is, Ariman Lucifer, this kind of complex that we've created. But it's that thing is uh, in the image of the source, you know, and so it thinks it's the greatest thing because it's in the image of the source. But it's not perfectly in the image of the source because it's limited in some ways. Like God wouldn't create something that it can't control or something like that, or whatever it is. Like it's not fully in its image and we're more in its image like this it's, it's created to be more like little gods which kind of bothers the thing that's created itself and this is you know eventually solved by jesus which is god born into the world which was always part of the plan always part of the plan is a big part of the trinity thing and gets arius slap saint arius i call saint arius the coptics and the ethiopians and the East Asian churches all call him St. Arius, but they would, in the Catholic Church, call Arius a heretic, heretic Arius. And there's a great painting of St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, slapping St. Arius across the face, the heretic Arius, at the Nicene Creed, because, or sorry, the Nicene Council. So when they're designing the, the creed at the council, because he's saying, well, look, if Jesus existed forever, I mean, just how does that work? Because if God makes Jesus, like at some point, Jesus had to be born, right? And then they're like, no, well, if you're saying Jesus, what well, he was born, like, yeah, but he existed before that. Yeah, but you're saying he's begotten. If he was unbegotten, they would say he was unbegotten. So he's clearly begotten, right? Like, and they're like, you don't get it. It's like, I don't think you do. Like, because what you're saying is that, Je you know, because if God has Jesus, then Jesus is born and Jesus changes everything. It's not that there's a different God. It's not that, you know, it's actually maybe that we misunderstood God, Occam's razor. Right. And also that if God is come is it's God is coming into our world at a later time at the beginning, that God is maybe reflective of things like learning and changing with us. Like as we're born and dying and living, all of our information is being assimilated into this thing from the very beginning of time on. Like after it happens in the future, because this thing is outside of time, it's aware of it even beyond. And these are like highly metaphysical ideas. And 
that we should try to live like Jesus then, you know, like we should try to be like this model. And then St. Nicholas is like, if you're saying that, you're basically saying that all these people have used Jesus as a sacrifice, you know, for their own immortality, like they're maybe not saved. Like you basically say even Paul might not be saved. It's like I, I, you know, and then he just slaps him across the face, you know, basically. But it is, you know, it does come to that kind of idea. Um, yeah, and I'm totally fascinated by this whole conversation. Now, to bring it back to maybe the three, four hundred years ago when these Europeans were coming over in this great migration, do you think that the Protestants, like, were these ideas that were occurring to them? Was this all behind them by then, like this idea that they were worshiping this New Testament loving God, the old God was different. Because what I understand from Calvinism is that it, it kind of, it became this thing where people felt like certain people were elected by God to be saved and others just weren't. And even if you were, you know, the holiest of holy, if you weren't elected by God, didn't matter what you do, you're going to go to hell. And the same is true for the elected. When you're elected, you can sin all you want. You're going to heaven. You're good. Like, how does this idea come about? Was this a sort of Middle Ages kind of born out of the Middle Ages? Or, or was is this an older idea? that? Because I'm wondering how it connects to the apocalypse. Because now we have all these different sects that believe that the end is near, you know, whether it's Jehovah's Witness or certain evangelic, evangelists, you know, and so on and so forth. There's this strain of the world is ending, and it really does connect in with a lot of the conspiracy theory culture and the idea of the new world order. Uh, it's hard to parse the two apart when you really, like, dig in. You know, a lot of people reference the New Testament, you know, almost habitually, you know, as if it's prophecy that they're engaging in, you know. I think a lot, okay, so you've got obviously a, a group of people that are just trying to practice their faith. And I think that's honorable and, you know, that's true. There's a group of people that are just normal, but groups, there's lots and lots of groups. And particularly interesting is that the Puritans are going through Lytle because they're in Amsterdam, they're out of north, south of Amsterdam in, in Holland in a time when atheism is emerging as a kind of Gnosticism, this idea of a depersonified God. And there's different kinds of religious schools that are emerging. And yeah, the Rosicrucians are interested in John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a very important, like there are a lot more religions, there's a lot more versions of Christianity at that time that have different books that are focusing on John the Baptist a lot more. And there are groups, you know, the Christians are thinking the Mende Mendeans are Christians because they think they're following John the Baptist, they're, they're following John the Revelator, because they think all the Johns are the same, but they don't really understand how different they are at the time. So they're existing. And even when you've got Calvinism and Puritans and everything, there still is like, even the Bogomils are pretty much suppressed. Cathars still exist. And there are a lot of these kind of secretive groups that exist into like France having crusades against Cathars in the 1700s, right? Like the suppression of the Cathars. So there's a lot of Gnostic ideas that are still in Europe and does become safer in the United States in different places to practice these things. And you start to see it in Ohio and different states. I mean, but in New England, of course, at the very beginning, there's the witch trials. I don't know how that plays out in the long run. I think that it kind of leads to, well, we tried the witch trials. It was a bad idea and we should allow people to exist. But there's still 
privacy, you know, this idea of keeping esoteric, keeping things secret and everything. I think that becomes more and more ingrained. The idea that you can be saved, your individual group that can be saved, like Jehovah's Witness believe that. But a lot of the a lot of that I think comes from the Crusades because you have this idea of the penance that you'll be able to be saved. And they're thinking, okay, to be a member of the tribe, you have to be picked. And it's obviously not that you're just rich. You know, that comes out of a Neoplatonic idea. The first that it is that you're rich. First, it's that you're a lord. Only the lords are going to go. And then it's like relatives of the lords. Who, I'm part of this royal family, so I can be a priest. But that starts to emerge as not the way of things by like the 15th, 16th century because of flagellants and different kinds of groups. The plague is hit in Byzantine. And any time that they've been anything but pious, they see a problem. So all of a sudden it emerges this idea. Like really, it's all about giving everything to the church and maybe you'll be one of the 144,000. But that's only with a specific group. So it's not what everyone believes. And a lot of people are believing that it's a bigger, that people will rise from the dead and be saints, you know, and that the saints are people that are performing miracles. And then then you have two different groups. You've got people that are saying, well, we're going to establish Zion on earth. Others saying we're going to go to heaven and heaven becomes even, are we going to be servants to lords or are we going to be free from the prison simulation and just be able to be gods? Cause we're going to essentially be images of God without mortality. Mortality is this thing that's holding us back. This has been introduced by, you know, so there's all these things that start to emerge at that point. And then you even have the idea that the witnesses of God, you know, because like Jesus at the time, like there's those who practiced at that particular time, they were, you know, martyrs mean witness. It doesn't really mean someone who's murdered. We just think of it like that because they murdered all of the witnesses, but that there's a group of people that will know like the right way to practice things and they'll still be doing it. And it won't matter that they don't know that they're doing it. And I think that's kind of it. You see that in John the Revelator's revelations, like the sheep and the goats, the sheep don't even know that they're doing it. They're just following the way, the truth, and the life. And so it turns out that's just a dharmic principle. Like this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life, and this is the way you're supposed to practice. And no one else gets there. And let, no one gets to these consequences without following these choices. These actions lead to these consequences. And so it's interesting because of that idea of John the Baptist is an eschatologist because it's maybe not saying that the end is near in the sense that like, oh, the apocalypse is on Thursday, but that it's constantly ending. Every moment is constantly ending. And so you constantly have the opportunity to cut off the past and be in the present. And even on a further level, looking at all these different religions, because you've got Christianity even in, in India and Jews in India, but going back, the belief that they have is that after Noah, after the flood, right, people went to different parts of the world. So they really all, even Indians would say that they come from this primordial source as certain kinds of Indian Christians and certain kinds of Indian Jews. So this idea that they're following from the same God, but that the version of God that people think of as the Abrahamic interpretation, this angry, jealous God, isn't really God. And that this more Vedic Dharmic interpretation of God is more correct, that there's consequences to actions. It's part of this divine law and principle. There's this endless Narayana that is enduring, it's eternal, it's beyond creation and destruction, right? These things uh, are happening inside of this greater thing. And so that I think also emerges, we, we start to see that John the Baptist is showing a more true interpretation of Dharmic principles and consequences, not saying this is good and evil, but 
that this is pure, you know, and so purity becomes more of the focus. And yeah, all of that gets thrown out the window by crusader Christianity for like Pauline Christianity, but it takes a long time and it's not like the normal order of things. A lot, it seems like most people are interested in the John the Baptist spreading of this Jubilee debt forgiveness, small groups of Christians meeting Baptist meeting. And if someone's poor, they help pay their debts. They help get them food. They help them like build their house. They help work together in building a house. These communities spread really rapidly. And then at a certain point, they're forced to convert. Their towns are burnt down. They're forced to build a temple to this militant papacy that's called the Corpus Christi. And it become, you know, it becomes kind of confused. Yeah, wow. And that explains why there was this exodus to America. And you have groups like the Quakers, which, I mean, that that's who came to mind as you described this, these ideals set forth by John the Baptist. And that's, I'm sure that's not by coincidence. There's been all sorts of, you know, weird things I've learned about them and other lesser known groups. The transcendentalists were sort of born out of this group of, you know, people who questioned what it really meant to be a Christian. And as someone who was kind of raised in the Catholic world, not really, you know, knowing the nihilistic transformation that was going on, I'm really grateful to have kind of come back into this world uh, from this angle of understanding history, humanity, and really the history of philosophy, which is a subject that you have uh, an incredible grasp on. Uh, You're a really great resource for this topic. But as we sort of wind down and, you know, I've been cutting the show up differently, so this will probably be just for the supporters only in this section. But before we get to that supporters only section, you've been talking about a ton of really cool stuff on your YouTube channel. So I really can't uh, stress that to the audience enough to go and support and follow all of your live streams and check out the archive of stuff. I mean, things like satanic mathematics, the origins of Shrek, King Arthur, Ghislaine and her dolphins, and then even Nazi Tartaria are some of the headlines that just gleamed from the top of the list there. And all stuff that I hope we could talk a little bit about, but folks, that are tuning in, go and check out Zertus's channel for the deep dives on all those subjects and more. But before we get to that, you mentioned the Bosnian pyramid, a little bit about it. Now you're Eastern European, right? Like, are you from Bosnia, like your heritage or different country? I have some Bosnia, mostly Croatian. So we're like, it's all that same region, but we're in the coasts. Cool. Cool. And I think this is something that whether it's ancestor, you know, magic or some sort of, you know, whatever term you want to put on it, there's something inherently powerful about connecting with where your DNA comes from and that, sure. that story retracing it. You know, I've found a lot of joy in doing that. I highly recommend people do it, especially if your grandparents are older or still alive, you know, get collect those stories now, record them. But did you have that sense that or that feeling of like, wow, like I appreciate you. The pleasure's mine and we ought to do more shows together and involve yeah, the people. That's another reason why your live streams are so great is because the chat is there. People are involved. They're researching alongside of you. I just put this podcast out and 
wait and cross my fingers that the comments are nice. So please, people, get involved in the conversation. Join our Telegram. We got a Patreon as well where there's an exclusive Telegram. Are you on Telegram much? Or I feel like you're more of a Discord guy. You're on Discord, Depends right? on the circumstance. Like, I try to be, I'm trying to be just, like, on anything I can be. I do have the Telegram. I right. should be posting more. I'll try to get back to it. I, just be, I really got to take care of my Patreon. I'll start putting some more, like, my gener- AI-generated art in like bulk packs or something for like mm. trading cards. That's what I, sh- I should be doing. Let's talk to <laughs> Thomas about trading cards. He's the man. He's been cr- putting true. out some cool stuff in that regard. Yeah, maybe we ought to do uh, a show soon with Thomas because him and I have been doing some fun stuff with uh, his Paranoid Programming show. Nice. And we had like this prank call show. We just need more podcasts to prank. So luckily <laughs> our buddy Juan on Juan just started a voicemail line for his show. So what a sweet man. He's in the, he's in the sights for a prank call using AI 11 labs. Oh, I just, well, this is the supporters only, so they know the secrets, but, but yeah, we got to do more shows together, brother. It's good to reconnect. Good to have you back on the show and don't be shy. I'm down to come on the streams anytime. Just invite me. But yeah, but yeah, well, come, any, come on any Tuesday or Wednesday. Paranoid Americans on every sync tank on Tuesday. Wednesday Ultra is still going strong. And we have Sam the Newsman, who's the most trusted puppet in news reporting. I don't know if you've seen Sam the Newsman, but he's, he's a straight up Muppet that reports the news. He's amazing. <laughs> I love and it. And also, one chosen one on one is coming on the show this Wednesday. So oh, that'll cool. be cool too. Right on. Well, maybe I'll be there then. So look forward to that, folks. Of course, support Zertus in all the places, especially Patreon. We'll link that in the show notes. And until (laughs) next time, thank you so much for being here and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Family Think Some Crazy podcast. Thank you for sticking around to the end. If you're still listening, this, of course, is the free edition. You're missing out on a whole other part of the conversation where Andreas and I talk about his trip to Bosnia. We talk about the the pyramids there. We talk about a little bit more than that. It's about 45 to 30 minutes of conversation extra that you could be getting If you sign up on the Patreon, not just that, but in the extended outro, I'm going to be looking through some of the Spotify comments, some of the Q&As that are there for the Spotify listeners. Uh, So please support the show today on Patreon or Substack for just $5. You get access to all of the extended editions to the show, ad-free and uncensored. You get all of our bonus shows, the show that Juan and I do each week, Juan Ayala from the Juan-on-Juan podcast, and so much more. There's the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy secret vault where I have episodes that are not published on the free feed. That's a special treat for anybody in the $5 tier or above. So yeah, please sign up there today and uh, you'll get access to all that and so much more. The $8 tier, you get access to the Substack and the Patreon for just $8. If you prefer Substack, some people don't like Patreon, you could just go straight to Substack. Uh, But I will give you a free subscription to Substack if you sign up on the $8 tier. Unfortunately, I can't do it the other way around, where when you sign up to the Substack, I give you a free 
access to the Patreon. Just doesn't work like that. But one day uh, we'll have our own website and we'll be able to to do memberships directly through the website as opposed to Patreon. I'm not going to abandon Patreon. I love Patreon. Patreons help me uh, continue to do this podcast and not have to go and get a real job. Although I do work odd jobs here and there. Uh, lately, I've been focusing 100% on the podcast, putting out Substack articles. So look forward to more great stuff on the way i've got tons of interviews scheduled if you'd like to support this show please do so even uh, with a one-time donation you can also check out the merch available on our store in the links it's all there in the show notes very easy to find wherever you listen to the show just click the uh, show me more button or whatever it it's called sometimes it's just there i use podcast addict which makes it really easy to find all this this information in the show notes so yeah get educated be an educated podcast listener know what you're doing help out the shows that you listen to yes we have ads now if you don't like the ads well you have an option you can get every episode of this show ad free on the patreon or the Substack. so don't hesitate go and do that today and then of course support andreas exertis he's an awesome dude great to have him back on the show he's probably someone who i've had on the show the most uh, next to probably Juan. so yeah andre's a great guest he's full of information always going to have him back on the show uh and he always surprises me he knows a lot of stuff great to have him on the show support him his links are in the description big shout out to the hit kit the number one way to get lit you can support garrett and support yourself really by picking up a kit a hit kit you know, the kits, the hit kits, whether it's uh, the Swiss kit, the double barrel hit kit, the coffer hit kit. I like the double barrel because I prefer to put my joints or blunts or whatever I'm smoking out into a, one of these like tubes, you know, and it's a nice little neat device. It holds your lighter, holds these tubes in there. So whatever you're smoking on stays safe and sound in your pocket. You don't have to worry about stinking up the place or reaching into your pocket and feeling a salad of whatever you just rolled up, right? That's the worst when you get a bunch of dust bunnies and all kinds of stuff mixed into your weed. So keep your bud safe and sound with the Hit Kit. He's got all kinds of variations, so go and check it out. Find the right Hit Kit for you. You can even get custom designs. Got you know, very basic hit kits all the way to very complicated hit kits. One of the hit kits is on my desk. It's a, um, a rolling station. So if you're a real G and you roll a lot of blunts or joints, you're going to need this rolling station. It's perfect for cones because it's got a nice little spot for you to put the cone. It's got a tray for you to scoop all your butt onto and then it pours out the other side right into the cone. You really got to check it out. Me explaining it will not do it justice. Uh, there's a spot for your lighter. There's a spot for uh, a little jar that I believe comes with the hit kit. Uh, and you know what that jar is for. So yeah, enjoy the hit kit. Enjoy your cannabis in style with the hit kit rather. And that's about it for this outro. Support the show to get more from the show. And that's about it, folks. Thanks for being here and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Baby, 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 maybe, maybe. I'm 
I'm a little extra terrestrial Trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals But I confess too much off of the tongue All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young I be saying shit and they don't know where it's coming from In like a hundred years we went saw a bomb with guns Check the facts, check the fed, check the stars Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car They each they own, you can stick with your old ways But eat the rich and drink the motherfucking Kool-Aid And I can see the red on your lip stain White skin, blue collar, pure American made Fuck it You can keep your blood soaked heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah, my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy The morning in the net feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me my family thinks I'm crazy Baby, baby, baby My family thinks I'm crazy Baby, baby, baby You might think that I'm off in the deep end One too many Netflix docs on the weekends But check the budget for a military defense Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason Steel beams, another 1492 And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue And you be lit off the floor, I ain't got a clue All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said Ain't one brick left to gold up in the Fed They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack Talking like this, got kin talking behind backs Too much to unpack, so they talk smack And I'm just trying to converse with my clan But it ain't fan, so I'm here setting up camp Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy I'm on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pack thinks I'm on American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me my family thinks I'm crazy Baby, baby, baby My family thinks I'm crazy Maybe, maybe, maybe Just maybe Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy Come on, he's getting that feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pap thinks I'm on American and shady I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You can tell me that the president's an atheist It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Yeah, I think one thing I've learned is You can't rule anything out, so...